We're in Deuteronomy chapter number five once again this morning. It's on page 141 in your pew Bible in front of you if you need a copy of God's Word. We're in a study, a greater study of the book of Deuteronomy, many of the great themes of uh, the old covenant of God, the law, the moral law of God are found <clears throat> in the pages of a book that Jesus quoted from more than any other, and that is the book of Deuteronomy. And I don't know if Deuteronomy was important to Jesus. I think it ought to be important to us as well. There are lots of timeless truths that you find contained in the book of Deuteronomy, things about character and judgment and behavior uh, and worship that never go out of style, no matter the age, no matter the era. And so we're spending some significant time trying to glean these wonderful truths from the book of Deuteronomy. But in these summer months, we're kind of in a series within a series on the Ten Commandments, which are restated in the Bible for a second time in the book of Deuteronomy. The Ten Commandments, of course, are stated in the book of Exodus chapter 20 for the very first time when Moses came down from Sinai with tablets of stone given to the people of God. But then as 38 or so years now have passed, uh, Moses is with a second generation of the people of Israel who are now prepared to enter into the promised land. And he's preparing them spiritually for how they should live and how they should properly worship God. And that involves a restating of the law, Deuteronomos, Deuteronomy, second law. Not another law. But it's Moses restating the law of God to a new generation of Israel some four decades after it was first given to remind them of the urgent importance of knowing the will of God and then being doers of the word and not merely hearers only. And as I indicated last week, we're not taking these uh, Ten Commandments in uh, actual consecutive order, mostly consecutive order, but we've got some in and out for vacation time and we're just dealing with some of them in that fashion, knowing <clears throat> that some of our wonderful staff will pick up the ball and run with it in uh, some of the immediate weeks ahead. I want to finish uh, the message that we started last week on the fifth commandment of God, which is found very clearly in Deuteronomy 5 and verse number 16. This will be the only uh, one of the Ten Commandments that we devote two messages to for reasons I think that will be abundantly clear if they're not already. But the Fifth Commandment is important. You know it. We introduced it last week, and here's what it says, Deuteronomy 5:16. Honor <clears throat> your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving to you. In the Exodus version, it says that it may go well with you and that you may live long life upon the earth. Now, last week, we looked at the command as it pertained to how children are to relate to their parents. And as we uh, kind of walked our way through this very simple statement, we kind of addressed children at the various epochs or the various age stages of life. We talked about how young children are to honor their parents and the ways that they do that. And we talked about obeying and honoring your parents from the perspective of teenagers, which is a challenge in and of itself, both for the parent and for the teenager. Can I have an amen this morning? And then we talked about 
honoring your parents as adult children. Because while the command to obey your father and your mother is a command with a condition, a command with a time limitation, there does come a day when you no longer have to obey your father and your mother. You come out from under the umbrella of their authority and you come under the umbrella of either the authority of Jesus Christ himself or under the umbrella of the authority of your husband, but you leave the authority of your parents and you come under another God-given authority for the rest of your life. But honoring your father and mother is a command that has no time limit on it. And today I want to approach it from the other direction and talk to parents in particular <clears throat> about how to be a parent worthy of honor. And this is because, as we talked about before, many parents are not necessarily parents who are worthy of honor. Isn't that right? But the command to honor your father and your mother is not conditioned upon the worthiness of your parents. They may not be parents worthy of honor, but that does not give you, me, or anybody else an out in terms of not honoring their position as parents. They may not be honorable people, but the command is still valid, always has been, always will be, even though they may not be honorable people, we're to honor them for the position that they hold and for the role that they play in our lives. Now, with that in mind and having said that, let me say today, how much better to be and to become a parent who is worthy of your children's honor. Amen. I want to be a parent who is worthy of the honor of my children. How much better to be like that Proverbs 31 woman. I went to my daughter's house the other day and my artistic genius grandson, who's about 18, 19 months old, had drawn a picture for his mother in the Hillcrest Preschool. And it quoted from Proverbs 31, her children arise and call her blessed. Don't you want to be a mom whose children stand up throughout the stages of their life and call you blessed? Don't you want to be a father who has children who thank God every day? Lord, I could have been born to any man, but thank God I was born a child of my father. How much better to be a parent whose children long to be with you, long to do life with you. Look at your life and say, you know what? I want to be just like them. Now, before we get into the heart of this message, let me reemphasize that there are no perfect parents. Did you hear me say amen? There's no perfect parent. The only perfect parent I know is God, and his first two kids didn't turn out so well. Amen. So there are no perfect parents. But that doesn't mean that if your children don't turn out perfect, even if they turn out to be mostly rebellious, that does not mean that you were not a good parent. I know lots of great parents who did everything by the book that still had a child or two who turned out to be somewhat rebellious. So if your child fails in life, it might be because you had something to do with it. But then again, it might not. It might be because they can't be told anything. Amen. It may be because they've got a rebellious streak a mile wide in their life. All of humanity are free moral agents before God, and you have the best 
spiritual instruction known to man and still reject it, still make light of it, still not take it seriously, and still live in disobedience to your parents and to God. So to the parents here today, I would remind you, you're not a perfect parent. You don't have to strive for perfection. Don't think you have to be perfect. But having said that, I do think it's important to say we ought to, as parents, strive to be excellent parents. We ought to strive to be the best parents that we can possibly be. And there are some biblical principles about raising children that I think it's important for all of us to be aware of <clears throat> and knowing them and then putting them into practice, uh, I think can go a long way toward raising godly children who counted a privilege to honor their father and their mother. Let me give you four such principles this morning that are not particularly deep, but are often easily forgotten, which is why we do well to constantly keep them in front of us as parents and grandparents. The first of these biblical principles, very simply, is love your children. You need to love your children. That sounds very simplistic, something that ought to be a given. Some of y'all are sitting there thinking, well, I woke up this morning and got ready to came to church to hear him say that. I already know that. But I'm not convinced that many parents who say they love their children really love them in terms of how the Bible describes love. Remember, we live in an age of relativism where just about anything goes. And I've run across many parents across my time as a pastor who are much more interested in being a friend to their children than they are to be a loving parent to their children. And there's a world of difference with it between the two. I know a lot of parents, and the greatest goal in life is for their kids to like them. I've told you all before, I couldn't have cared less if my kids ever liked me or not. I didn't care if they liked me. I wanted to honor God in the way that I trained them, in the way that I taught them. In the, and sometimes that's going to mean they're not going to like you very much. Isn't that right? Uh, and they won't. Many parents think that the best way they can show love to their children is by giving them everything that they want. Thousands and thousands of dollars worth of stuff. It's almost like we're trying to buy the affection of our children. Or if we don't want to give them everything that they want, we think we need to let them do whatever they want. Well, I just want my children to, I, I just think it's best that they select their own friends. You know, just let them build friendships organically. Well, come to see me in about 12 years and tell me how that's working out for you. Now, you better be involved, engaged. There's so much I could say here specifically. But you need to love your children biblically. Now, how do I do that? Well, I'm going to give you several suggestions. First, and rudimentarily, you need to tell them that you love them. I've heard it more times than I can count. I heard it at a funeral not that long ago where the mother of the deceased father, the daughter rather of the deceased father came up to me and said, you know, he was such a good man, but he never told me that he loved me. This was a senior adult woman telling me that. He never told me, and I couldn't believe it when she said that because I knew the person, and so that came as a surprise to me. Uh, but here's the thing. Communicating love begins with what you say to your children. I know a lot of people think, well, I don't like to talk a big game. I just want to show it to them. Well, your kids need both. They need to hear it from you, and they need to see it demonstrated from you as well. Most of the people I know who've had that kind of parent where they just had to assume that their parent loved them by the ways that they demonstrated it. They'd give anything to hear 
their father, their mother, communicate their love to them verbally. I mean, think about it. If you don't tell them you love them, how are they really going to know it for sure? They can't. So don't just think your children are going to get it because you try to do enough good things for them to demonstrate your love. That's important. But it's never to be a substitute for words. The gospel that we preach is a gospel of words. The same thing applies with Christianity. We think we can just live such good life. You're not that good. You have to tell people about Jesus. You have to tell people about sin. You have to tell people about the love of God. You can't just play a game of charades in front of them and hope that they get it. And the same is true for every mom and dad when it comes to communicating the love for their children. I didn't get everything right. In fact, I probably got more stuff wrong than I did right when it came to raising my kids. But I'll tell you one thing, they'll never doubt that their dad loves them because they hear it and they've heard it throughout their whole life. There'll never be any doubt about that grand boy of mine that he knows Papa loves him because I tell him that every time I'm face-to-face -face in contact with him. When he shows up, when he departs, hey, Papa loves you. He didn't have any idea what I'm talking about, but he'll never doubt it. I know what I'm talking about, and I know that he needs to hear that early and he needs to hear it often. Proverbs 25, 11, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. And nowhere is that more true than when we verbally communicate love to our children. Now, having said that, a second way we communicate love is to show them affection. That's the second thing. You show them affection. You demonstrate your love for them, and the way that you do it is by being tender with them, being affectionate toward them. I know we, listen, we live in a day and age, anytime you talk about appropriate touching, caressing, hugging, kissing, you're on kind of shaky ground, we're all walking on eggshells. But kids very much need that kind of appropriate signaling. Everybody with me say amen. I mean, even your grown children. Till the day my daddy died, if I didn't turn my head, he'd have kissed me on the mouth. And that's the gospel truth. Man, he was a kissing lock. And so he was till the day he died and went home to be with the Lord. He was like the father and the prodigal son. When that prodigal son came home, that father ran to meet him. And the Bible says in the Greek, repetitively kissing him literally all over his face for that matter. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him, present tense, repetitively over and over. There's a grown man with a grown son who'd been living with pigs, probably smelled like a pig, and it's a great picture of fatherly love. Did you know that frequent hugs are a good way to keep your children from being sexually impure? You need to hug your kids. Dads, that's especially true when it comes to daughters. One of the greatest things that you can do for the esteem and for the self-confidence of your daughters is to hug them and to kiss them, always appropriately, but to hug and kiss your daughters Whenever a single young girl gets pregnant a lot of times, it's because she's looking for love and she's looking for affection and she's looking for acceptance. Sometimes she goes after it in all the wrong places. And that's why a girl who has a strong relationship with her dad uh, is far more confident and has a stronger ability to say no to the wrong kinds 
of relationship. Man, I taught my daughter early on. You get an inappropriately advanced phone by a guy, you have my permission to pick up an ax handle and show him some love right upside of his head. <laughs> that begins at home. And when a, when a, when a daughter especially is, a, is properly loved and shown affection, man, you're building security in her. It just makes it easy because she gets that kind of security at home. She doesn't have to go fishing for it anywhere. So you tell them you love them. You show them affection. Also, you love your children by listening to them. This was the hardest thing for me personally because I'm not a good listener. I've had to learn to become a better listener. Most preachers, by the way, are not the best listeners in the world. God calls and trains and equips us to get it out, not to set and take it in. There's a big difference between a pastor and a counselor most of the time. Counselors can sit and they can listen to you for hours. Most pastors can't. It's like we hear what we need to hear for about five minutes. Say, let me give you three things to do to get your life right. And all of them begin with the letter F today. <laughs> right? No, I, I learned to be a good listener. Because kids, especially when they get into adolescence and beyond, uh, you can't just let them barely get a sentence out and do what I just did. Because sometimes the best thing is just to say nothing and let your child talk. And you know as well as I do, those of you that have been around the block, that may be any hour of the day or night. Man, don't you love it when they start to open up at 1030 at night? Amen. In fact, I, had a, I talked to a parent the other day during vacation Bible school who told, said that very thing to me. I was talking to her about her teenage uh, kids, and, and she said, you know, he's got to the stage in life where before he goes to bed, he just comes into our rooms, plop, into our room, plops on the bed, and just likes to hang out. And then he starts to open up, and he starts to talk. And I said, well, that's a good thing. And she looked at me, and she said, yes, but why does it always have to be so late at night? And I said, I get it. But you know what? When you show a willingness to do that, you are communicating love to your child in volumes. And so you tell them you love them, you show them affection, you listen to them, but then finally you love your children by praying for them. Pray for them constantly. When you thought you prayed enough, pray some more. You have to recognize, see, praying for your children is a recognition to God that you don't have what it takes to do it all by yourself. You ask God to bless them. You ask God to provide for them, to mature them. Be very specific. I pray nearly every day. I prayed for my kids while I was still in their mother's womb. I wish I had some video of that. That would have looked really strange. Talking to my wife's, well, it wasn't that big of a belly. Y'all know what I'm talking about, though. <laughs> Just having a prayer over her body. I pray for my children's health. In fact, I do it today. In fact, I think I pray more urgently for my kids as adult parents. Maybe that has something to do with me maturing myself as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I pray. I pray for their health. Their I prayed for their education. I prayed for their spiritual development. I prayed for them to fall in love with Jesus, to be saved early so they could serve the Lord with a better part of their life. I prayed for our relationship with them as a mom and a dad. I prayed for the people that they would eventually date. I didn't like that kind of praying, but I did it. And I prayed for the people that they would one day marry. And here's the thing, God answered those prayers in my life. And I'm so thankful to him that I was taught in the church that I grew up in and the family I grew up in 
<clears throat> the incredible value and critical significance of prayer, especially when it comes to your children. And I tell you this, when you pray for your children faithfully and consistently, you're not going to have any trouble loving your kids. I mean, it's just one thing leads to another. You pray for them, and you take your children before the Lord. It's like praying for your enemies, right? Jesus said, bless your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Why? Because you cannot dislike or despise somebody that you're actively praying for. That will help you to love them with the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. So to be a parent worthy of honor, genuinely love your children. Does that make sense? Say amen. Then secondly, you need to encourage your children. That's another way you become a parent worthy of honor. Are you an encourager? More than you're a critic. Oh, my. Listen, I've known many parents who thought criticism was a spiritual gift. Amen. But parents who follow Jesus are parents who learn to encourage constantly and criticize only when it's necessary and beneficial. Ephesians 6 and verse 4. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, Bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Paul says a little differently in Colossians 3.21, same concept. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Do not lead your children to an angry spirit. That's the idea there. Do not lead your children in such a way that they become embittered because of your leadership or the lack thereof. Whenever I talk to people who have a hard time honor, uh, honoring their father and their mother, it's usually because of that right there. They have parents who have embittered them, who have provoked them, who have led them to anger. Provocative parenting. And provocative parenting always leads to anger exasperation, bitterness, whatever the word that your translation of the English Bible uses, ultimately that kind of provocation leads to the discouragement of the child. I've mentioned many times uh, how I've gleaned wisdom and encouragement from the life of Winston Churchill. My books are lined, or my shelves rather, lined with books about his life. Of course, every leader is flawed to some degree, and he surely wasn't perfect. One of the things about Churchill, though, is that he was born to a British father of the nobility. Uh, Churchill's ancestor was the first Duke of Marlborough. I mean, he, Churchill was born into a noble family line. And his father was Lord Randolph Churchill, who became the Chancellor of the Exchequer before his untimely death. Uh, his mother was an American from New York City, Jenny Jerome. So Winston Churchill's half American. She was born of the wealthy landed gentry of New York City. Both of those parents were well-bred, well-taught, but they weren't good parents. In fact, they were seriously lacking in terms of parenting ability, mostly harsh with him. They sent him away to school as a young boy. Most of their letters to him and his letters to them are still remaining today, and to read them will break your heart because they were mostly harsh, critical, nitpicking, disparaging. They make you cringe 
with you, when you read them, all he wanted was for his parents to love him. He never was sure that they did. He idolized them both and kept pictures of them in his home and in his office until the day he died when he was 90 years old. But he never got the support and the encouragement of his parents that he actually was looking for. I'm not sure I know all the reasons why, but many parents have this knack of majoring on the wrong and minimizing the right. And maybe that's because we were provoked as children by our parents. Maybe it's because we've just been through the school of hard knocks and we've become embittered about life and about the world. Maybe we've got a series of train wrecks in terms of our own relationships with others. Sometimes if you're not careful, that gets transferred onto the life of your kids. Sometimes it's because the only training we got as parents was the training that we had from our own mothers and fathers, which were seriously lacking for whatever reason, far less than ideal. But the principle here is usually garbage in, garbage out. And that's part of the reason our country's in a mess. And it's why how your parent really does matter. Talk to any public school teacher in the room today about parental involvement in the life of their child, and you'll get an earful. Because I'm the father of a public school teacher. So I know. Survey was taken one Mother's Day not long ago, and kids were asked, How do you wish your mom was different? You know what the number one answer was? I wish, you fill in the blank, I wish my mom didn't yell so much. 98% of the respondents said that. 50 times more than all of the other answers put together to that question. And probably the reason most moms yell at their kids is because their mother yelled at them. I'm not sure why I'm yelling. <laughs> I get fired up. Listen, children, children are a lot like plants. It doesn't take much to wilt them, do it? We go out of town, going to be doing it some this summer. Never fails. When I come back, the yard looks great. Plants outside look great. Everything's wonderful. And then we walk inside and everything's dead. You know why? I got a watering system outside, but I don't have one inside. And uh, as a result, the plants outside get nice, refreshing water every day. Plants inside are dying of thirst <clears throat> and they're drooping all over the house. But you know what's amazing? We walk around about the first thing we do after we get home before we even unpack the suitcase. There goes Judy filling up the Rubbermaid pitcher with water, walking around the house, watering all these lifeless, dead, wilted plants. By the time we wake up the next morning, guess what's happened to those plants? I mean, they've gotten perky again. That's right. They've come back to life, seemingly. And that's the way kids are. You deprive them of life-giving words, they are going to wilt. Kids need the refreshing waters of encouragement. They need the refreshing waters of praise. They need it early in their life, and they need it often throughout their life. So look for opportunities to praise your kids. Constructively criticize when it's necessary, you've got to do it. That's part of proper discipline. Correct when necessary. That's part of proper discipline. But generally speaking, praise, praise, praise. Well, preacher, I don't want to give my kid the big head. Take the risk. Take the risk. 
I double dog dare you. I don't think you can outpraise kids. You can correct when you need to, and that'll be the check and balance. But generally speaking, praise, 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 because I just don't think you can over-encourage your children. Then there's a third thing. Speaking of that, you need to discipline your children. That's the other side of the coin. Discipline your children. Now, time's not going to allow me to be very specific here, and nor am I brave enough to be very specific here, to be honest with you. We'll have private conversation about that if you need it. Somebody say amen. But it's very important for your children to have boundaries and to know exactly where the boundaries are. Children need healthy limits. And when those limits are violated, when they've tried to stretch the boundaries and go beyond the boundaries, you discipline your children. And when you do, you'll feel terrible about it. You'll probably cry worse than they will. You'll think your children hate you. But when your children are grown, they will love you, respect you, and honor you for your faithfulness. There are many parents, I just, love, I just love my child too much to hurt him. Did you know that the Bible says if you don't discipline your children, you don't love them biblically? So don't say that. Because there is no biblical love without discipline. Does God discipline you as a child? As one of his children? Hebrews 12 makes it very clear. The Lord disciplines those he loves and scourges all those who belong to him. That's the nature of God, to correct what's wrong, to get us back to what's right. Proverbs 13 and 24, whoever spares the rod, say the next word, please, hates his son, but whoever loves it is diligent to what? Discipline him. Why? Because the failure to discipline results in children who do not know the difference between right and wrong. The lack of discipline results in no moral compass, no inner barometer, which helps children distinguish what's right and what's wrong. And that's why you have to establish the limits, set the limits early while children are very young, and then stick with the rules. Rules are not all bad. Most people I know today do not like rules. And yet rules are very biblical things. God has rules. God has rules, and if you want the discipline of God, all you got to do is go beyond the rules, right? So establish the rules with your kids, and then stick with the rules because consistency is critical. That's what builds security in children. Man, when they know, here's where the boundaries are, and ooh, it's tempting to go over there, and I'd like to, but, and you want your kids to always have the but in the back of their brain. Oh, it'd be great to go over here, but I'd like to go with you, but I'd like to do this, but that builds security in kids. When the boundaries are there, they know what the boundaries are, and when the boundaries don't move, children have security in that kind of an arena. They know what the limits are. Now, there's not much you can do about other people's children, though you want to. I mean, we've all been in the Target or the Walmart. Y'all know what I'm talking about. I don't even need to go there this morning, right? 
I mean, I just, all that stuff makes me think about the time when I was a kid. We didn't have Target and we didn't have Walmart, but we had Kmart when I was a kid. And my mother would have left us right in the middle of the aisle to go find the kitchen section just to borrow a wooden spoon, if you know what I mean. That was my mother. And she'd have shown me biblical love right in front of anybody who wanted to watch, right there in the Kmart. But you can't do much about other people's kids, but you can make a decision that you're going to discipline your children. Might pain you for the moment, but that decision will produce children, the Bible says, who come to respect and honor you even more when they become adults and they have children of their own. Again, Hebrews 12, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Everybody with me so far, say amen. One last thing I want to leave you with, very important, and it's the best of all, laugh with your children. Somebody say amen. That's a good, that's a good note on which to end today. Laugh with your children. And I say that because I'm convinced that a lot of the problem with homes today is that they're places of pressure and anxiety more than they are places of joy and laughter. I mean, is your home a place of laughter? A place of enjoyment? When was the last time something just struck you as funny? And everybody in the house got in on it and just started horse laughing together, belly laughing. I love it when that happens. It happens a lot in my house. Yeah, we have stress-packed moments, tension-packed moments. All families do. But I'm just telling you, at the lock home up in the can north of here, uh, it's a place of laughter. And no one is more fun. Judy's not in here this morning. But man, if you want to have a good time, get her going laughing. It's the greatest thing in the world. You won't even know why she's laughing, and you'll be laughing rolling in the floor. Not even sure why you're laughing. That needs to happen often, not just once in a blue moon. Yeah, we had that happen. Pastor, let's see, when was that? Just before Easter, wasn't it? Yeah. No. Life's hard. Would you agree with that? Life is hard. The TV's got not much but depressing stuff on it. And I'm convinced that the only way most of us are going to make it through this broken world is with a smile on our face and joy in our hearts. We need to laugh together at situations. And we need to learn how to laugh at ourselves. Quit taking ourselves so seriously. Hey, some people in the room today need to learn not to get so uptight when the kids mash up the sofa with their shoes, get dirt all over it, or smudge the walls or the computer screen with chocolate-covered fingers, or, or trample in potting soil, or pine bark mulch into the new carpet with their Nike $150 tennis shoes that were white just 30 minutes earlier. Because there's going to come a day when they're gone and you'll have all the time in the world to look at that pristine sofa and those sparkling clean walls 
and that picture-perfect carpet that you don't want anybody walking on with shoes on their feet. The Bible says laughter is good medicine, and our homes desperately need to be marked by it. Adrian Rogers tells a story about workers at the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. In 1993, they had closed a part of the Hall of Fame to do some remodeling work. And they pulled a cabinet out away from the wall. That cabinet had thousands of dollars worth of memorabilia in it. And as they pulled that cabinet out, they found taped to the back of the cabinet, which just a few moments before had been up against the wall, they found an old photograph. It was a picture of a man in an old baseball uniform with the word Sinclair Oil across the front of the jersey. <clears throat> and stapled to the picture was a handwritten note that simply said, you were never too tired to play ball. On your days off, you helped build the little league field. You always came to watch me play. You were a Hall of Fame dad. Man, a national sports magazine got a hold of that story, set out to find the owner of the photograph. They wanted to find out who that dad in that old baseball uniform was. And as it became public, there was a middle-aged man who came forward to say that that was his father. And on a visit to the Baseball Hall of Fame where he was taking his kids, that man's grandkids, he had tucked it behind that cabinet as they visited the Baseball Hall of Fame. It was a picture of his late father. And he felt like his dad deserved some special recognition. So he said, I didn't figure the folks there at the Hall of Fame would mind, but we just conducted our own little induction ceremony to install my dad into the Hall of Fame. I don't know about you, but that's what I want to be. I want to be a Hall of Fame dad. I want my wife to be a Hall of Fame mom. And here's the good word from God's word. You can be. If you make a commitment today, I'm going to understand and know what the Bible said, not only about honoring my father and my mother, but about being a parent worthy of my children's honor. I'm going to commit to know some things that I can practically put into place so that my children will find it no challenge to obey the clear command of God that simply says, honor thy father and thy mother. This is God's word. And all God's people said, amen.